Nehemiah chapter 12. We're coming to the end of our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they are the record of God renewing His people in Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon. So there's today's message, and then next week we'll wrap up uh, with the end of it. The title of today's message is The Fruit of a Hundred Years. At a hundred year mark, what is the fruit that's been produced in the hearts of the people of Israel? And I'm rounding up a little bit because the uh, chapter 7 or chapter 12 events happen about 93 years into it. But at the beginning of chapter 13, that's about 10 or 12 years later. And so we're dipping into both of those parts today. So I'm, I'm taking the average. I'm calling it 100 years. Where do things stand after 100 years? What were the people like now? We read by, we find out by reading three accounts that give us a window into their hearts. The first will be the dedication of the wall that they had recently built around Jerusalem. Second is the description of the ministry of the priests and the Levites there. And the third is a report of how they reacted to a public reading of Scripture. So those are our three little vignettes that happen around the 100-year mark. And they tell us about the heart condition of people. Where did they end up? Besides the building of stuff, where were they after 100 years? And as we consider these things, we are invited to come and see what God has done. That's what Psalm 66.5 tells us to do. This is what God has done. Things God intended to work into His people as He renewed them, and things He intends to renew in us as we're being renewed in Christ. So we're going to see something to, to rejoice in, God's past activity, but something to look forward to as He's also working in us, something we can aspire to. So before we do that, uh, again, I want to pray for God's help. Lord, cold winter day, and definitely there's a lot going on that can grab our attention, take our thoughts running in all sorts of directions. We ask for your help to hear from you, to take these ancient words and make them fresh again because they're living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. They're for us today. And so give us the encouragement and instruction that they're intended for. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Come and see what God has done. What did he do in the hearts of the people? The first evidence is that they were rejoicing in God's grace. So let's pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 27. This is the dedication ceremony of the defensive wall that they built around the city. And we're going to read excerpts. It's a lot of, it's a lot of text, so I, I hope that it works out. But I put text together with skipping a bunch of stuff. So we're going to follow the line of the story, but not necessarily all the names, which my pronunciation would distract you from the story. So let's just go at it. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, 
with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmabeths. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, and this is Nehemiah now talking, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshahana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me and the priests. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So where do things stand after a hundred years of renewal? There's thanksgiving. There's singing. There's rejoicing with great joy. It was so loud that it could be heard beyond the city. This was like the roar of a stadium after your local team has just won the championship and now they're moving on to the Super Bowl. We haven't heard that noise in Green Bay or Denver recently. However, it has happened. But maybe you have the remembrance of that. <laughs> it could be heard from far away. That's what happened here in Jerusalem. Thanksgiving, great joy, singing. These people were happy. This is a celebration. But it's a celebration of what? Is it just, well, you know, we finished this wall. It took 52 days. That was a lot of work, and so we're happy. Yay. Was it that? No, it wasn't that. This was bigger. It's deeper. It's a celebration of God's promises kept, of the visible evidence of His grace working in their lives. The wall represented a symbolic milestone for the people of Israel. Houses still needed to be built. The city still needed to be repopulated. That was going to take months and years. But the defensive wall was the visible sign that God's people had returned to their city, the holy city, and they were there to stay. So the dedication was about faithfulness, God's faithfulness, to keep His promises, to celebrate his faithfulness, His grace. He had promised through, the Jer through Jeremiah long ago, I will gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you. He promised, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound. 
He said, The days are coming when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. We read about that tower as we were reading this. That's about the wall. So God had promised, I'm going to do all this. And now it's done. God has done it. God's been faithful. Though we were rebellious, though we had to be disciplined and exiled, we stand here today as the renewed people of God in God's place under God's word. So let's celebrate. You know, that's God's agenda for us today. To rejoice with great joy. To celebrate God's faithfulness. His grace to us through Christ. Um, to be so happy that singing and shouting and giving thanks is the right response to it. It's not for no reason that we sing when we get together. <laughs> because that's the intentional remembrance. God has been good and that is worth singing about even though we have all these trials going on in our lives, we can sing. God wants us to be joyful. That's His intention for us. It's what He's going to do, if not now, definitely in eternity. But why not bring it into today? There's a way we can do that, and I'm going to talk about it. Um, when I entered college, I was a non-Christian, and my impression of Christians was they're the stuffy, unhappy, boring, weird people. I don't ever want to be like that. You know, nothing good happens on that end of the spectrum. Like, I was schooled in, school, in uh, songs like Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. So some of you know that. So there's a, it, it's Only the Good Die Young, good meaning the religious in, in his song. Um, and one line in it was, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. That was my mentality going into college. Well, as I started to witness the spectrum, you've got the guys every Saturday night pursuing happiness with all their might and just getting wasted and stoned and just the next morning feeling absolutely worthless. And then I'm meeting these Christians over here, and they seem to be happy without all that stuff. <laughs> they seem to have real friendships. They seem to have purpose in their life. There's something about them that's more attractive. And it started to weaken this idea I had about, well, who's really having the most fun here? Who's really got reason to be happy? And, and it ended up being Jesus Christ because that was the center of their whole life. And so I eventually came to Christ also. <laughs> I was provoked by what I saw, and I was attracted to it. Um, Joy comes from God. That's really where it comes from. The real thing, the, the lasting thing, comes only from God. At the dedication, they rejoiced, for it says, God had made them rejoice with great joy. It was this realization of His goodness, His patience, His steadfast love, His promises fulfilled. That's how we get joy. Anybody can be happy if things are going well, if you get what you want all the time. But to have joy even when things are not going our way, when we don't get what we want, that's something that comes from God. It comes from the discipline of remembering what God has done. Psalm 103.2 says, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's a joy-seeking discipline. Forget not his discipline, his, his benefits. And it goes on to list those benefits. The Lord forgives all your iniquity. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Those are all benefits that come to us through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, bearing the blame and the punishment for our sins. In Jesus, we have God's love and forgiveness and help and a bright eternal future. Joy comes from God. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's what God wants for us to experience. And the way we experience it is to take time to remember to not forget His benefits. So that means joy involves a decision on our parts. If we want to experience it, we need to choose to stop obsessing over the troubles and over the what-ifs and the fears of the future and make that our meditation. We have to choose not to do that. We've got to take our brain and go, not there, I'm going to go over there. And I'm going to look at and think about something else. I'm going to take captive those thoughts. I'm going to choose to remember God's benefits to me through Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do every Sunday. Like, it's, you might get out of bed and it's just a duty, it's a thing we do, I'm supposed to be there, but it's a duty to, do, to seek joy, <laughs> if I can put it that way. It's, it's an intentional remembering. Bill, give us some songs to sing so I can remember Jesus is the friend of sinners, because on my own, I'm not going to remember that. What I'm going to remember is the problems that I have coming up in front of me this week. So we're choosing, we're making a choice to be here to remember His benefits because we're going after joy. We're going after how good God is to us through Christ. And you do that in your discipleship groups and in other things that we do. Um, Psalm 16.6 is true for every believer. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, it says. It's the inheritance of eternal life that is kept in heaven for you. It can't be taken away by any trial you face here and now. So we have reason to rejoice even in our trials. God's agenda is to make us rejoice. He's where the real thing is, <laughs> real happiness. Not the kind that ends every Saturday night. <clears throat> Let's look at the next fruit of the hearts of God's people at the 100-year mark. They had gratitude for those in ministry. And by ministry in their context, I mean the service of the priests and the Levites in the temple. So let's read uh, chapter 12, verses 44 to 47. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. 
For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So we see here the kind of relationship that existed between the people at large and the Levites and the priests. And that relationship was a barometer of their relationship with God because the Levites and the priests were the ones who, in a sense, connected people to God. Among all the 12 tribes, it was the tribe of Levi that was authorized to serve in and around the temple, which was the visible representation of God's dwelling among them. They maintained the temple, and some of them, the descendants of Aaron, were consecrated to be priests who offered the sacrifices that atoned for sin. Without atonement for sin, God could not dwell among them because He is holy. So it was the priests who mediated between God and man by means of sacrifice, and that ensured that they lived at peace with God. So, in a, so the way Israel related to their priests was a barometer of their relationship with God. If you value peace with God, being right with God, you'd value the priests because those are the guys you bring the sacrifices to. They're the mediators. Well, at this point in time, the people valued their priests and Levites. They rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. They weren't just glad they were around. <laughs> they also supported them financially. They set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. You see, the Levites, because they were called to focus on the worship life of Israel, weren't out there farming and getting food for themselves. So God's way of arranging things was, we're going to have one tribe, they're dedicated to the worship life, and everybody else is going to pay a tithe, and that's going to support them. And everybody's happy. Everybody, everything's covered. Um, that was the arrangement. They get a tithe of the goods from the people. And they did that. They rejoiced to do that because God had made them rejoice with great joy in His abundant grace. And so their attitude toward the priest was an overflow of their attitude toward God. Okay, so what's the takeaway for us? This would be a perfect opportunity to say, support your local pastor and give generously to the church. <laughs> now, that wouldn't be wrong. There's passages in the New Testament about that. Um, giving to the church is appropriate, and it is a practical barometer of where your heart is with the Lord. That may be exactly how you apply this passage. But we don't want to cut Jesus out of the equation here. The place to start is to rejoice in Jesus Christ, our great high priest who is, according to 1 Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself 
as a ransom for all. You and I don't need priests to make peace with God. It's been done by Christ on the cross. So our first application is to rejoice in Christ, our great high priest, our mediator, uh, to be thankful, to sing about His love and His mercy. And that's why our songs are so full of gospel and so full of Jesus, and we sing the same kinds of things every week, because why not? He's great. <laughs> and that's our, that's our mediator. This is how we're, we have peace with God. What else is better to sing about than, than our life, Christ who is our life? So... That's why we pick the songs we do. Jesus has removed the offense of our sins. And according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, He has become our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Those are three terms that say different things about what Jesus did for us as our mediator. Our righteousness, a legal declaration, you're pardoned from all of your sins now and forever even the ones you haven't committed yet. You're pardoned. That's righteousness. It's wrapped up in that term. He's our sanctification. You've been set apart for God. You've been declared holy. Um, you're, you're His now. You belong to Him. Set apart for Him. You've been made holy. You're a saint. That's now your identity. And then your redemption. That's being purchased out of slavery to sin purchased from death row, purchased out of prison. It's a set free term. Those are all things that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross as our great high priest. So if we rejoice in Him, if we rejoice in Christ, then here's one thing that will happen. You will rejoice in those who minister on behalf of Christ. Because you want more of Christ. <laughs> and you want people in your life who are going to help you to know Him. That's a New Testament ethic. Paul expressed it in 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, he has pastors in mind there foremost, those who are over you in the Lord in an official capacity. But in principle, it extends to all those who are co-laborers of the gospel, who serve in whatever capacity to help us to know God, to help us to find our joy in Jesus, to remember His goodness. This isn't about putting anybody on a pedestal, but it is about esteeming someone because of their work. What is the work? The work is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, bringing the gospel into our lives. Anybody who's doing that, we're going to value, we're going to esteem because we love Him, we love Jesus, and you're helping me to love Jesus and know Jesus. I think I can speak for Todd and Dan by saying that you make it easy for us to be a pastor of this church, because we know your gratitude. Um, last October, I think we all got signs plastered all over our garage door. Okay, I don't know who that was. You don't have to raise your hand, but thank you. 
full of encouragements, notes. A lot of people had written on it. And uh, that was great. I mean, and that's not only the time we get individual encouragements as well, but you're a church that encourages us. You put up with us. You know, we're sinners. We don't do things right. We're aware that we're messing things up every week. But when you encourage us anyway, it really goes a long way. I just say thank you. Mark Twain said, I can live for two months on a good compliment. Um, it doesn't last that long for me, but I definitely agree with the sentiment. <laughs> Renewal looks like rejoicing in God's grace and gratitude for those who minister as servants of God. But here's the last fruit we see in the hearts of the people at the 100-year mark. It's that they were responsive to God's word. This is from chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. It says this. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned their curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, the English translation is a little misleading here. It says, on that day, which seems to make it sound like it was the same day as the dedication of the wall. But when you keep reading on in chapter 13, you see that actually this was later, um, maybe even 12 years later. But it was some period of time. It might be better translated as in those days, which leaves the exact time unknown. But it's here just to, as another vignette, another, another window into, so what were the people like? Okay, they're rejoicing in God, they love their ministers, but how do they respond to God's Word? That's what this one's about. And they are responsive to God's Word. It says, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. So pic picture a Sabbath day. Um, they're at what we might think of as a synagogue. They're in the public hearing of the Scripture anyway. And the reading for the day is Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5, which is a prohibition that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Those nations were not allowed to be part of God's people, at least not unless they were like Ruth the Moabite woman, who claimed Israel's God as her God, then you'd receive a welcome. But if you're not that, no Moabites, no Ammonites. Why is that? Because historically they were the enemies and the corruptors of the faith of Israel. They led them away from the living God. The prime example of this is when they hired Balaam against them to curse them, it says. That's exhibit A. This is why we don't have them. They, they hired somebody to curse us, except that God overruled it. He turned it into a blessing. And you can find that account in Numbers 22 to 24. So the prohibition is about protecting the faith of Israel, ensuring their hearts don't run after another God. Don't mix with the pagan nations, don't, especially don't intermarry with them, because your foreign wives will turn your hearts away from the Lord just like they did with Solomon. So don't do it. So that's the context. That's what they're hearing when the book of Moses, the law of God, is being read out of Deuteronomy, 
And it says, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. In other words, they wasted no time in obeying the Scriptures. Like, that's what we're supposed to do? Okay, let's do it. We're going to do that right now. As soon as they heard it, they did it. That's responsiveness. That's a powerful work of God in the soul. When you obey a command, just because God's Word says so, even if it's going to be a hard thing, even if it's going to be a painful thing, that's genuine trust. That's real submission to God. That is worship. That's to be like Jesus, who though when he was in the garden, he was about to be arrested and crucified, he said, not my will, but your will be done. It reminds me of the words to a hymn I learned in my early days as a Christian. It stuck with me because it was so simple, but it's also profound. The words are, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I see some Gray hairs shaking their heads. None of, you, none of the rest of you have ever heard that, but we remember it. <laughs> trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. One of the challenges, I think, of our cultural moment, which is not really new, is this thinking that it's arrogant to be certain about things that the Bible teaches, like heaven and hell, like human sexuality and what God says about that, or even what is it that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Humility is supposedly leaving all those things open-ended. Don't be dogmatic. Just be open to alternative explanations. Now, to be sure, we can be confidently wrong about things. <laughs> we have to admit that, which is why we need the church community because it's harder to be confidently wrong when you have people challenging you and maybe making a good case that maybe you haven't thought of this. So we, that's why we need the church. There's protection in being in the community. But it's not humble to leave open-ended something that God has made clear. If God says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not humility to say, well, I want to hear from other voices about that before I make my mind up. If God says, there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus, then there is salvation in no other name. There's no argument here. There's no discussion. You don't need to find out more options or opinions on that. It is that way. Humility is to trust and obey. That's to pursue our joy because God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. God is a good and loving Father who is wiser than we are, and everything He tells us to do is the right and best thing to do. It's how to navigate life well. Responsiveness to God's Word is, a, is an indication of a changed heart. When we take joy in the living God and His steadfast love, we get a new desire, like 1 John 5.3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Conversion isn't just a change in what we do, it's a change in what we love. We become people who love to do what God says to do. It becomes not burdensome. It's like, I'm in line with that. That's good. 
I'm going to do that. Will we struggle to do it? Sure we will. <laughs> because we aren't fully free from the temptation to sin. Will, will obedience be hard sometimes? Absolutely. But will we be glad we did it? Yes. Because God's commands are designed to make us flourish. The Israelites show us what trust in God really looks like. I hear, I believe, I obey. That's what they did with this, il this illustration of the, the foreign wives. And that's just like Jesus who obeyed even to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. So we've seen the fruit of 100 years of God renewing his people. The outcome is that they rejoiced in God. They were grateful for their ministers. They were responsive to God's word. Those are the things that God is working in us day by day through Jesus Christ. I want to close with two lessons about what we learned from the whole 100-year process. So this is now not just chapters 12 and 13, but looking back all the way, Ezra chapter 1 to Nehemiah chapter 13. What have we learned so far? When we think back about the whole thing, where are we now at the 100-year mark here? Uh, what do we learn from that 100-year process for our own lives? Here's the first lesson. Realize God is more concerned about building people than structures. That's probably not a very profound thing to say. We could all say yes, of course, obviously. You know, God doesn't care about the building we meet in. He cares about the people. Like, you know, I don't think we have trouble agreeing with that. But it might get lost in the way we actually do things. Um, it comes from an ob observation over the whole Ezra and Nehemiah story. You go back and you read those two books, you see there's not really all that much that's said about the actual building of the structures. Uh, they built an altar, they built a temple, they built a wall. We know a few things about that. We know they're going to build houses next. But we don't really get very many details about those buildings, those things they made. We don't know what they looked like when they were done. We don't know their dimensions. We don't know the, the method of building. We don't know how much it cost. We don't know what tools were used. I mean, that wasn't really of interest when they were writing this. When God wanted us to read this, he didn't want those details there. What we do read, though, is we read, we read a lot about the people, their challenges, their sins, their repentance, their covenant renewal, and now their joy and responsiveness to God after 100 years. That's because the point isn't the structures. The point is the people. That's where the kingdom of God is coming. It's in hearts, not in the buildings. The takeaway is that sometimes we can get so caught up in the work, in the doing, in the maintaining of the physical or figurative structures of life and church, we can miss the people that we're doing it for. I don't know how many times I've done this. I walk into a ministry meeting or some event, just all business, all instructions, all tasks and questions, you know, ready to follow my script. And I miss the important questions like, so how are you? Or the encouragements, thank you for doing that. Thank you for serving. You know, because I'm just thinking, let's get this thing done. Let's work. Let's make it happen. <clears throat> but pulling off an organized meeting or going through your script is not as important as the relationships. Definitely not as important as somebody's relationship with God. 
which we're there to help, uh, help them increase that. Let's be sure we don't miss the person behind all the tasks. Uh, take time for the conversations, the unhurried moments, the genuine interest in somebody else. Know that they, they are loved, that they matter, that God is looking at them, God is thinking about them. Jesus is going to renew the whole world one day. I mean, all the physical stuff is going to be renewed. But he laid down his life for his friends. Think about that. That's personal. Here's the second lesson. We'll end with that. Take the long view in your labor, faithful labors for God's kingdom. Take, take the long view in your faithful labors for God's kingdom. It just comes from the simple observation that this wonderful work of God in His people was a hundred years in the making. <laughs> it wasn't an overnight thing. It spanned three generations. Along the way, there were times when it looked like nothing was happening. So you go back over into the Ezra a uh, book of Ezra, there was a period of almost two decades where they had stopped building the temple. Like, as soon as opposition rose up, they're like, okay, I won't do it. And they sat there for, two, for 20 years like that. Nothing's happening. There were more decades before Ezra brought a Bible, before he brought the book. <laughs> they didn't have the book. Even when he arrived, he found out that people were intermarrying with the surrounding nations that it was happening. There was all kinds of idolatry. They had made peace with it. It was a long and bumpy road on the way to joy and submission to God that we read about. So we should take the long view in our labors for God's kingdom. What we plant today in the lives of people we care about might not show up for a long time. I was reading a book the other day for fun, which... Uh, had an account of an experiment that started in 1879 at a university in Michigan. They wanted to know how long could a seed still sprout something if you just kept it in kind of a container um, and then like you opened it up at different intervals. So they did this. In 1879, they put a bunch of seeds in a bunch of jars mixed up with sand, buried them in the ground 18 inches deep, and left them there. Every 10 years, they'd pull out one of them and then plant the seeds and see if anything would grow. Well, the last time they pulled out a jar was the year 2000. Well, at least as of the time of this book. They were going to do it again in 2020. Um, they pulled out one of those jars. It was 120 years old now. It's been sitting in the ground for 120 years. They planted the seeds, and guess what? Stuff grow, grew from it. We can be like those seeds. What you say, what you do, can be like those seeds in the lives of other people. What you say and do in Jesus' name has the ability to produce something long after we've forgotten that we ever said it or did it. It can produce something after we're dead. It just takes a while sometimes in God's providence. It, he works on the scale of centuries. <laughs> That's hard for us to be okay with in our cu culture of instant everything. I mean, Amazon has wrecked us. If I don't get something in two days, there's something wrong with the world. You know, because Amazon says so. I can get it. I mean, texting is even worse. I texted you an hour ago. How come you haven't responded to me? 
We have this, we have, we, we're, we're trained to want things to happen right away, to expect it to happen right away. It spills over into our expectations for our kids. You're five years old now. You should know not to be mean to your sister. I mean, like, come on. You're five. You should know this. Our, our teens, why don't you respect me after all I've done for you? Like, well, when I was a teen, I didn't either. Spills over into discipleship group. We've been meeting for a whole year now. Why are you still so immature? I mean, we don't say that, but I mean, in in our head, maybe. <laughs> There's the encouragement. God promises that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He says to exhausted parents, to frustrated teachers. To everyone who hits an emotional wall because you don't see that your care is making any difference, he says in Psalm 126.5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. If we don't see the reaping here, we will see it in the hereafter. In the great mystery of God's secret will, one plants and other waters, but God causes the growth. And he does it in his time and in his way. There will be growth, though. There will be reaping. One day in glory, we'll see it, and we'll see the part that we played in it. And there will be shouts of joy. So take the long view in your labors for Jesus. Be faithful, be patient, be thankful, be joyful. A hundred years is not too long for the Lord to build something, or 2,000 years. And be sure of this, He is building something. He is building His church that will endure forever. And you will be part of the celebration. He will make you rejoice with great joy. Be sure of that. Let's pray. We thank you for being long-suffering with us, Lord, patient with us. We thank you that we have a future and a hope. We have you now, present, working among us by your Spirit, we have your, your provision, your support, your, your guidance, your illumination. We have an inheritance that is beautiful. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places despite our immediate circumstances. So help us to see it. Give us the mental discipline of remembering your benefits for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.